Let's pray. You may be seated. Let's pray for the blessing of the preaching of God's word. Lord, even this morning I would ask that you would grant to your minister wisdom and unction as he speaks, not words that belong to him, but to you and to this body, that by your spirit you would strengthen and enable that you would give strength to weary hands and weary hearts. Lord, as many of us have been afflicted with illness, we are to remember that though this body and flesh may fail, you are our strength and our portion forever. Lord, that even now we would remember the great mission given to the church, that we would throw off every weight of hindrance, that we would run the race that is set before us, looking to the author and perfecter of our faith, being surrounded by such a great a cloud of witnesses, and run the race before us. This we ask, that you would by your spirit give to us strength. We pray these things then in the name of Christ our King. Amen. Having read the word, I now would like to read a poem related to the topic that you'll find in the title, Pioneer. I want you to think of yourselves no longer as church planters, though we once were. The mission of church planting is really not distinct from the mission of just being a church. The work of church planting is a perpetual work that even now we should be praying specifically that God would give to Reformation OPC opportunity in the coming years to plant more outposts of gospel ministry throughout the land. Starting here, I don't know which direction we're going to head, but that's why we're praying and plotting. I would like to read a poem. I will not say the author's name until I am done so that I don't prejudice you too much. It begins in this way, for we cannot tarry here. We must march, my darlings. We must bear the brunt of danger. We, the youthful sinewy races, all the rest on us depend. Pioneers, O pioneers. All the past we leave behind. We debauch upon a newer, mightier world, varied world, fresh and strong, the world we seize, world of labor and the march. Pioneers. O pioneers, we detachments steady throwing, down the edges, through the passes, up the mountain steep, conquering, holding, daring, venturing, as we go the unknown ways. Pioneers, O pioneers, O to die, advancing on, are there some of us to droop and die? Has the hour come? Then upon the march we fittest die, sure And soon the gap is filled. Pioneers, O pioneers, not for delectations sweet, not the cushion and the slipper, not the peaceful and the studious, not the riches safe and palling, not for us the tame enjoyment. Pioneers, O pioneers, till with sound of trumpet, far, far off the daybreak call, hark how loud and clear I hear it wind. Swift to the head of the army, swift, spring to your places, pioneers, oh, pioneers. That's the great theologian, Walt Whitman, not really, <laughs> if you know who he is. Uh, not a man to be emulated, but a, a, a wonderful poem that 
captures the sentiment in many respects as an American poet, the American spirit, the spirit to move west, the spirit to go and tame. But that spirit did not begin with this nation, this pioneering spirit, this seeking to explore the great frontiers that belong to creation is found in the very first call given to man and woman in the garden. To go and to take dominion, multiplying, being fruitful, and going out of the garden and seeking to expand the order of the glorious, peaceful fellowship of God and man together to the very utter ends of the earth. From the very beginning, you and I, male and female, together, along with our children, were called to fill and subdue the earth. And that call by God is woven into our very DNA. I think you can sense it. I think you can understand it. I think in many ways it is largely intimidating, even in the phase of our church when we were a church plant, you would have come and people come and say, well, wow, you're small. And I would say to them, well, less small if you stay. Are you willing? Many seek the comfort of that which is established if you can imagine, it would be like the conversation that a man might have uh, with his wife in the 19th century. And he says, sweetheart, I know we have a good thing going here on the East Coast, but I feel the call to go to Oregon. Some of you may have even grown up with the little 8-bit video game Oregon Trail. I did. And someone always died of smallpox. Uh, it's funny enough when you're playing it, it's something else when you're living it. And yet God has called and instilled in the hearts and minds of people this pioneering disposition. When Paul is writing to the church in Rome, he fills the pool to Spain. He wishes to take the gospel to those who have not yet heard it to go west, to expand the kingdom of Christ beyond the borders of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the very utter ends of the earth. When Jim Elliot decided that God had called him, even while he was in college, to go to Ecuador to the Aka Indians, and he and Nate Sade and a handful of other men and their wives, what were they doing? They were not vacationing. They were embracing the adventure and even the danger, and I can imagine there was something about that very thing that appealed to them, but the driving cause was that the gospel of Jesus Christ might be taken to a place filled with the kinds of people darkened, possessed, and controlled by demons. For what sake? That they may know the light of the gospel and to be set free by the word of God. Gaston County used to be that kind of place, filled with all manner of pagans, for there is truly no real noble savage. But savages, people that would kill, maybe even at one point eat one another, 
that the call to the church that is now rephrased as the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all the land, the whole world, is a pioneering call. So this morning, I want to set before us again, since our inception in 2009 with a handful of people meeting on Sunday night as a Bible study, set before us again what our great mission is. It is a mission to take the gospel into the farthest reaches of the earth, and that does not exclude the very places where we often go. It's very, very easy to talk about foreign missions and get excited about that. And we want to meet with foreign missionaries. We want them to come and join and, and present to us the work of the gospel in places that are very strange to us. But what about Walmart? The one on Franklin, right? That Walmart. <laughs> and even down here on, on Myrtle School Road, that Walmart. Those are the kinds of people, too, who need to hear the gospel. Do we have still within our hearts, beating in our chests, this pioneering spirit? Now, there's three points that I want to make that I've lifted from these texts as it relates to our mission. The first, the first is this. Our mission has been set. We do not have to wake up and wonder what we're supposed to do. And it has been set since Christ gave to the apostles the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Our mission has been set. Secondly, our tools have been given. God has not left us to simply figure out how to accomplish this mission. He's given us what is necessary to accomplish it. And then thirdly, not only has he given us the mission, given us the tools, but the Holy Spirit has been given to the church. He has been sent out into all the earth in order to fight with and for us. And so my last point would be our God fights with us. So the first point, our mission has been set. Secondly, our tools have been given. And then lastly, our God fights with us. Let's look at the first point. In Acts chapter 28, you might be wondering why I'm reading about the lack of success of the word of God in the Old Testament as God was ministering to the Jewish people. Why this record of the rebellion of Israel writ large. Now, not all the Jews rejected Christ. All the apostles were Jews. The early church was made up of Jewish people, but not Jewish in terms of theology. For the apostles received Christ as the Messiah. Now, our mission has been set. What is that mission? Here in Acts 28, Paul reveals something incredible as it relates to the mission and work of the church. Something has changed. Now, not changed in the plan of God. God's plan does not change. But God, in the course of revealing his work among sinful men, is showing the apostles clearly that the Jews have rejected the Messiah... And then in verse 28, we read, Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. It's general admission. And they will hear it. Now, what does that mean? That means not only that I have every confidence, Paul says, 
that you will be faithful to preach the word, but here this they will hear it refers to the efficacious nature of its being preached and them responding with ears that hear. This is contrasted in verse 27. For the hearts of this people, that is the Jewish people of the Old Covenant or the Old Testament, for the hearts of this people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing. What is Christ doing by his spirit? He is giving soft, sensitive hearing to the nations of the earth. And what he is saying to his apostles is this. I have prepared them for you to go and preach. I have provided a rapt audience. Now, not audience. All audiences are rapt. That is, hanging on every word. You know this even probably in your own personal evangelism when you go and you speak to a Gentile or anyone. And you present the gospel to them and it's like it just pings off their forehead and they didn't get a word of it. They're not going, well, thank you so much. Now my life is complete. God has sent you to me. No, they reject it. We know that that will happen. Even right now we see the nations rage. And these are many of them Gentile nations. But there are those who will hear. You, who sit here this morning, are the fruit and the evidence of the surety of this very promise in Acts 28, 28. And so Paul is speaking to the church, and he is saying that this mission has been set, and they will hear. The Spirit will be effective. We will not fail. Now contrast that with many who in the church in America today are so backwards in the way in which they are unfamiliar with the promises of God. They don't actually believe the promises of God. They are losers. What I mean by that is this. It's almost as though they like the idea that though we tarry in the field... Whatever we do for the Lord will not reap fruit in this life. We're going to lose down here. The problem with that statement is that the Holy Spirit is God. And he has been sent into the world to do one thing, so to speak. To build the church. When Christ came to earth, the second person, and he did what the Father committed him to do, was there anything that Christ left undone in his ministry? Did he go to the Father and say, well, I tried, I tried, but they're just so sinful. I couldn't accomplish the mission. What? No. When, in fact, it's on the cross where Christ says it is finished. Christ did everything that was needed in order for sinners to be reconciled to the Father at his death. Now he's raised. 
He has ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And will the Spirit one day say to the Father, I couldn't get through to those Americans. They're just so stinking independent. I couldn't get them. Or those Muslims. They're just so hell-bent on worshiping Allah that I could not convince them to become Christians. Will the Spirit come to the Father and to the Son and say, I tried, I could not do it. Now, obviously, the question needs to be asked, to what degree will the elect cover the earth? And to this, the promise of Habakkuk is very clear, that the knowledge of God will cover the earth as water covers the sea. What he is saying is, is all the world will become wet with the gospel. And not just having heard the word, as though, oh, I heard it one time on a Sunday night, right? Down on the street corner, there was a guy preaching. But heard in the Acts 28.8 way. They will hear it and they will believe it. And so our mission is this. It is to spread the knowledge of God throughout all the earth as water covers the sea. That's our mission. You and I have been called to this special task. And it will not be fulfilled in your lifetime. It will not be fulfilled in the lifetime of my children or my children's children. Because as much as I believe that Christ will return to earth to a place where the knowledge of God covers the earth as water covers the sea, do you see that? Have you, now, could God do that tomorrow? Yes. Yes, he can. But the normal way that God builds families and churches and the kingdom of Christ over all the earth is stone by stone, brick by brick, day by day, over centuries of faithful labors. But that doesn't change the mission. The mission doesn't change. Now, maybe it means we need to become a little more patient. We need to see that we have time, and that time needs to be well spent. But you have been called to this special task. What then is your frontier? Because every pioneer needs one, right? Right now, as it relates to my house, my frontier is the acre and a half of wooded area that just sits downhill from my house. And I look at it and go, it's so much work. But what I should be doing every Saturday is getting out and pruning, cutting down trees, pulling weeds, sowing grass. Right? What then is the mission and work of the church? It is to sow with the tools of word, prayer, and sacrament so that we might reap a harvest of souls. And that leads me then to my second point. We've been given tools. This is where I look at Nehemiah chapter 4. Now, Nehemiah, children, do you know that Nehemiah is the shortest person in the whole Bible? Did you know that? He's Nehemiah. Have you ever heard that? No? Are you listening? <laughs> I, I take it from your lack of laughing that it was either bad or you're not listening. I, I don't know which it is. Nehemiah was the kind of guy who, when challenged, he pulled people's hair out. 
He was a rough and tumble kind of guy. He was the, the kind of Teddy Roosevelt of sorts of the Old Testament. He was a rough writer. He was up to the task. He was the one who, when he was up on a ladder one day, a Gashmu, uh, is reported to have said that uh, they're saying bad things about Israel. You should come down and deal with the chatter. And Nehemiah, calling down from the top of the ladder, says, I'm working. Why should I come down? Perhaps a little bit of the spirit of Nehemiah would be good for us even today. This particular instance, there are people who are continuing to aggravate the industry of the people of God that had returned from exile, right? Nebuchadnezzar took the southern kingdom into exile. A few decades later, the Persian Empire sent some Israelites back to Jerusalem under God's sovereign hand. Even the Persian Empire paid for the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple. God is king of kings. And while they are working, there are these constant aggravations. Some of them are verbal, right? Some of them are physical. And hearing about a physical fet, Nehemiah arms the laborers, not only with a hammer, but a sword. This is how we are to think of the work of building the church. We build and we defend. Now, the tool that Christ has given to us, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> the tool that Christ has given to the church now is the sword of the Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says, arm yourself. You have a shield, a breastplate, a helmet, your feet are shod. And your hand has a sword in it. <clears throat> what is that sword for? It is for warfare. And that sword, even in the church today, wages war against principalities and powers in that it builds the body, right? When we teach, when the word of God sounds forth from the pulpit, <clears throat> it does two things in the sense that it brings Life and judgment, but it does that to the saints and to those who are maybe visiting. We don't know if they're Christians, those who are lost, whatever it may be. The word of God is everything that we need to build the church that the spirit might be manifest in our midst. The other word that God has given us is the word presented in sacrament, the gospel that is found in the Lord's Supper and in baptism. And of course, praying is the pleading of the saints to God that he would bless our labors with fruit. All those things need to be present. And if we do not have the tools, we will not succeed in the mission, not only to build but to defend one of the things that we often do in the church in the West is we have lost the ability and the tact and the stomach to wage war. Because how will people hear? People may prejudge. People may not come to church if we are too dogmatic. <clears throat> what is the objection then to dogma? It is not an objection to truth. That truth exists. It is the objection that your truth, 
may interfere with my sin. That's the problem we have with dogma. I don't like what your truth does to my idols. And one of the great idols of Western civilization is pluralism. This idea that so long as you are sincere, you can build any wall in any temple you like. But that's not what we are called to do. We are called to build Christ's kingdom. And that tool or tools are to be used not only in the building of the church, but think about your daily lives. How much of your time week to week is spent building Reformation OPC proper? Now, I know sometimes you come and you volunteer with a toilet. It seems like a lot of kingdom building is plumbing, especially in the basement of this building. But the majority of the kingdom work that you're doing day to day is vocational in nature. In the way that meals are prepared, in the way that houses are cleaned, in the way that you interact with your co-workers, in the way in which you manage or are managed at work. All of this is to be done armed by word, prayer, and sacrament. Now, what I don't mean is if you're a Christian, you go and in your break room at your local Fortune 500 company, you start passing out bread and wine. That's not what I mean. Because Christ has not given it to anyone to administer the sacraments. He's given it to the church. But what I do mean is this. Having partaken of the bread and wine of Christ here on Sunday and worshiping here on Sunday, you go out on Monday and you ask yourself, how do I, as one who identify with the dead and resurrected Messiah, exude the righteousness of God? Say it with my mouth. Live it out with my hands. How do I do that? According to the tools that God has given. And I will say this. That the day primarily that Christ has given us to be charged, to be renewed, to be restored, and to have our whole lives recast. Recast. Like you would recast a loan. You know what that is? Let's say you come into some money, you put that money down on your mortgage as a a lump sum payment on your principal, and then they recast your loan so that your monthly premiums go down and you can pay off your loan sooner. If you endeavor to live the Christian life without the deposit of God's grace and mercy on the Lord's day, you will find that you are unable to do what you've been called to do Monday through Saturday With the perspective of Christ's righteousness and his power, you will run out of energy and you will not care. You will run your life aground. But Christ has given us tools. He has given us his word. What we ought to expect then as we build this kingdom is exhaustion and attack. We have not experienced as much attack as we may experience in the years that are to come. But the question for us is this. Are we grounded and are we armed upon and with the word of God in such a way that when we are attacked, we will not scatter in fear? And that we can actually defend 
the faith that has been handed down to us because we know the word well enough to wield the sword well. We will all be under attack. Your own souls, the souls of your spouse and children, children, you will be under attack from the enemy. You will be tempted in unique ways to be selfish, to be unfriendly, and to withhold love and patience from your friends. How does the world attack our children? Through entertainment and bad education. And the fact that our children are under such great attack now is evidence that we lost that battle generations ago when we said that our children are nothing but animals. They're just single-celled organisms, just a bit more sophisticated. And this is what the world says. And when I say world, I mean our world, the world in which we live. The reason why they are despised is because they are not treasured. They don't know what a child is. Kids, this means even as you are under attack, you actually have the ability to bear witness to the glory of God. That you ought to know God's word. That you can befriend your enemies by telling them the truth of God's word. You are to build and you are to use spirit-wrought word force. That is the force of the word of God brought to bear on the lives of our neighbors in order to faithfully build the walls of the church. That list, let's go to the last point then. We have a mission, we have tools, and most importantly, we have a God who fights with us. As I said already in verse 28 of Acts 28, we read, This salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. How is that God with us? Because when God promises us something... He is faithful and present to accomplish that promise. God does not sit back upon his throne and say, all right, good job, you 2,000 years away from me, right? You know, there's not a, a proximity of distance between the commander of the army of the Lord and the army of God. So when you think of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, he has been sent by the Father, the first person, and the Son, the second person of the Godhead, to go into all the world and to bring the truth of God's word into the world that disciples might be made. But the Spirit manifests that power by the very intimate presence of all the persons of the Godhead. So wherever the Spirit is, there the Father and the Son are. If that blows your mind, it's meant to. This is doctrine of God's stuff. It's heady stuff. But take it as gospel that wherever the Spirit is, so the Father and the Son. The plan of the Father and the power, redeeming power of the blood of the Son. God is with us. And then in Nehemiah, he says it twice. In verse 14, and I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Fight for who? For them. For them. Do not be afraid. Why? Because the Lord who is great and awesome and then verse 20, 
our God will fight for us. If the mission is the bringing in of the entirety of the harvest, which means every single day on earth, there are those conceived and born into the world whom God has chosen before the foundations of the world were laid. There is always then a harvest springing up, waiting to be brought in. We can't just say, well, it's the end of a new year, we're done. Because guess what tomorrow is? As long as God tarries, there's a mission. And January 1st, 2024, I mean, I've heard it's going to be a pretty exciting year in this country. They have no idea. The world has no idea what God has planned for those who love him. I guess what I'm saying is we are a pioneer people because we have a pioneer God. That is a God who never rests in his faithful application and pursuit of a people who once did not know him, who by his grace have been brought into his household. He has made his salvation appear by sending his son, Jesus Christ. He has made his salvation available through the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And even now he fights to rescue those lost in sin. And he invites us to be part of this work, this mission. The question I have for you, because I'm your pastor, is, is this something you actually want to do? Is this a mission that you devote yourself to and have any desire to devote yourself to? Because I will say, and it's happened to me in the pastorate, you can get into cruise control because I know every Sunday I need two sermons written, Monday, Monday, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, or at least I have them downloaded from somebody. I'm just kidding. That's not true. <laughs> I have to preach and it's very easy for me to get in cruise control and just sit in my study and kind of think, to just sort of think about what needs to be said on Sunday. And I can detach myself from people. I can detach myself from the people who I live with, not to mention the people I've been called to shepherd. And I lose the pioneering spirit for the sake of retreat. I don't mean retreating in battle. I mean retreating into the ivory tower of pastoral study. That is not the picture that we find in Scripture. Now, there are times where even Christ himself went alone to be with the Father. But those times were not infrequent, but in the sort of space of how much time is spent doing work and how much time is spent doing rest, there was a lot of work that Christ did in those three years. And so did the apostles. You will be tired and there are some Sundays when the idyllic idea of every child is sitting in the pew with their hands folded and they're looking at the pastor and then you go home and you sit around the table and they say, Father, could you please explain to me the doctrine of propitiation? I would really like to understand that so I can communicate to my school friends what the doc... No, that's never going to happen. Well, it may as they get older, but the idyllic... We're shooting for what God, what honors the Lord. But we know that a lot of it is messy. And the messiness is where the work needs to go. This is the work of the kingdom. It's like two parents going, well, I changed the last one. You get to change this one. 
But what Christ is calling you to say, how about I change them all? I know that Christ will be honored with my labors. I need to, not in human effort, by my bootstraps, just go do it. But if you go, Christ will honor it. And it will not always be perfect. Dwight L. Moody said, I like my way, though, of doing it better than your way of not doing it. Oftentimes we are paralyzed either by apathy or fear. But that is not who we are. Christ has not called you to bear his name simply so you can think about how great it is to be a child of God. But so that you might, through faithful labors, multiply. Exhibit Christ-like character unto the end that the world will be one for Christ. When does it end? Well, I don't think Walt Whitman, I don't know what he meant. Walt Whitman was a, a backward sort of fellow. But his poem ends with that last phrase, Till with sound of trumpet, far, far off the daybreak call. Hark, how loud and clear I hear it wind. Swift to the head of the army, swift, spring to your places, pioneers, O oh pioneers. Dear saints, one day the trumpet will sound, and that's when we'll be done. And until the trumpet sounds, or you're six feet, is it six feet? Six feet underground, right? Our labor continues. Let's get to work. Let's pray. Lord.